Well, thank you uh, so much for having me. And uh, as an aside, what that says about Nate versus me, Nate's a big ebook guy. That's so uh, his his boxes were a lot lighter. Um, but I uh, I have a degree in English, taught English literature and composition for a decade, and so I still kind of prefer the physical copy. I don't know if I can ever make the the jump to ebooks. Um, but I'm excited to be here. Um, I am excited that um, I don't know if I don't know if I'm as excited that I'm following Jonathan because uh, Jonathan is a very very powerful communicator. But his message apparently last week was on reading and understanding scripture and approaching scripture, and so I, I did not know that. So that I feel like this kind of bookends well. Um, what I want to bring to you today is uh, a look at seven things every Christian should know about the Bible. So this book is based off of Michael Bird. If you're not familiar with him, he is a dean and president of a Christian seminary in Australia. Now, I really like him. He has a systematic theology text uh, that's really good. That's really what turned me on to him. But when I saw this not too long ago in a bookstore, I was like, I have to get this. Uh, a, because of the content, but B, because in my own class, I used to do a lot of this before we would start a novel in like a literature class. I would say, hey, here's five things you need to know before we start reading this book. Uh, and I even extended that over to like an essay. If we were starting that, here's three things you need to know before we uh, dive into this. And a lot of it was to, hey, just make sure we're on the same page, make sure that we are all operating from the same premises. Um, I like his is seven things, the holy number. So that's awesome. Um, but that's to say a lot of this, if not all of this, is kind of centered around and based on this book. So I, I, I do encourage you, if this interests you, definitely check this out because I'm going kind of a mile wide and an inch deep where he gets a lot deeper in uh, this text. So it's titled Seven Things Every Christian Should Know About the Bible. Um, and... I will maintain that it's seven things everybody should know about the Bible, but it starts with us as Christians because what it does is allow us to uh, speak with confidence to a skeptic or a, a non-believer or somebody that has questions either genuinely or, you know, and if they're antagonistically just asking them. But he says that this is an important thing because there's a lot of misconceptions. Um, he says it's important because there's a lot of misconceptions between Christians as well as non-believers, uh, and one thing that I kind of I think adds to this is culturally. Anybody in here a big History Channel fan? I was like the weird kid that was always watching the uh, History Channel, like presidents, like, and they were going through like you know Martin Van Buren. That's I've never heard of that human. That's interesting. Um, but what always used to rile me up, especially as I got older, was any time around Easter. Uh, Christmas, you get these like secret texts of the Bible, right? Secret books of the Bible, banned books of the Bible, like these controversial titles to draw people in. And there was a lot of misconceptions that were kind of like extended through that. Even if you didn't watch that special, you kind of see that. And he tries to head off a lot of that um, in this. Also, oftentimes there's just a general lack of knowledge in general, just overall. Uh, and I think that this can help, these points can help Christians get the most out of their Bible, helps us to have better Bible reading and study experiences, and then 
um, helps us to be more equipped to talk about reading the Bible with our non-Christian friends in a way that will be per, uh, persuasive and convincing. So I'm going to do a shameless plug here, but I'm currently going through the Colson uh, Institute for Christian Worldview. If you're not familiar with that, talk to Stan. Uh, he, can, he can definitely uh, give you some information there. But essentially, it's uh, engaging with a Christian worldview culture. And so I, I automatically kind of take a posture of apologetics. And so I'm always thinking, okay, this is a text that could help me speak on a general level to any concerns or any uh, critiques that somebody may have or questions they may have um, on the front end. And so I feel that we can talk with more confidence and more knowledge about some of the questions and objections that people often have about the Bible. So in the vein of that history channel bit that I was just talking about, first thing he talks about is how was the Bible put together? Okay, so some common questions, who put the Bible together? How do we know we got the right books? How did the Old Testament, New Testament come to be in their present form? So typically... A misconception here, we get two extremes, right? You have one side that, you know, may think that the Bible floated down from heaven, you know, fully formed with Jesus's words in red and the Schofield notes on footnotes on the bottom, right? Um, but then the other extreme is, and this is the one that is often per, like, perpetuated by culture, but the Bible was developed in some sort of way, like a secret council or even an open council. Constantine and some bishops just decided, like, all right, out with that, in with this, out with that, in with this, which is not how the Bible came to be uh, formed. So both views are wrong. But if you think about and look at the Old Testament, working up to around 70 A.D., there's a slowly developing consensus um, and I love that. I love how God works, right? It's not just one human coming in saying, all right, this is going to be in the canon. This is not. So you have a developing consensus, uh, most certainly about the Torah. So you see that the first five books of Moses, um, you see the major and minor prophets. All of those are being read by 70 AD, at, like by the Jewish people. Um, after that, it gets a little, it's not as clear. Um, but there are a ton of texts out there. There's a ton of scholarship on this. Michael Horton's a good source um, who does a lot of work with the biblical canon and kind of does deep dives into that. Um, but essentially, we should just know that there was a consensus. It wasn't just like, okay, we're going to take this out. Um, with the New Testament, it's very clear that the early church, second, third century, they were clearly focused on and valued anything that spoke to Jesus and the life of Jesus. So the four Gospels were immediately adopted and being read. Um, so we have that. They were kind of the primary go-to. Um, Paul's letters, Acts, they were all, at that time, you wouldn't have called them, quote, canon, but they were authoritative for the church. So the church was reading these texts in um, in that time. So you see this kind of core consensus developing. Um, again, later texts are then adopted, but not in a way that culture may say or, or people often think that there was some sort of council that said, okay, we're going to take these and kick those out. So what about non-canonical texts? Because you do have non-canonical texts that aren't in the, they call them extra biblical often, but they're not in the Bible canon, but they are out there. And so there was a process that was involved there in deciding, okay, these are, you know, not 
verifiable or these are not worthy of being adopted into the canon. They may be valuable for reading, but they're not necessarily what we're going to put into our uh, canonized Bible. But again, at the end of the day, his point is there's a slow process with widespread consensus. There's no sort of conspiracy at work that gets us the Bible. Um, so his next point, the Bible was inspired. So we hear this all the time. We all know this, right? Inspiration is a, is a term that we're familiar with in terms of the Bible. But what does that exactly mean? So here's what it doesn't mean, because oftentimes, you know, we can think of inspiration as like, uh, you know, Matthew sitting by a river. He's like, I'm insp I feel inspired. I'm going to start writing down, you know, Jesus said, love your enemies. That's I'm inspired right now. There's a butterfly. It makes me think of Jesus here. Let me write this down. So that's not what it means. Right. That's not what happened. Also, uh, we tend to maybe think that, you know, Matthew goes up into his study with a quill, his eyes roll in the back of his head and he just, you know, is feverishly writing. And then here we go. We have the book of Matthew. Um, so when we say the Bible was inspired, we don't mean in that way, but rather it was divinely given yet humanly composed. So I love this, especially as a writing teacher, um, that inspiration means God's spirit moves or fills an author to write an account using their own knowledge. We see this throughout, and this is often a critique of, you know, people on the outside is that there's inconsistencies here and these stylistically are different, etc. But God uses people in their own time, in their own way, in their own language, which I absolutely love. Um, so you see, you see uh, people's personality, their own vocabulary, uh, you know, the way they tell a story. And it represents, it all represents God's purpose and God's message to us, but it's conveyed through specific particular human authors, which I absolutely love. Um, another point, sorry, I don't have a clicker, so I'm just, I like being the weatherman, you know, with the clicker. Um, we know the Bible is truth. The Bible is normative, not negotiable. Now, this may be the biggest, uh, the biggest hurdle that we see for people currently, right? Um, you know, people want kind of the modern approach is, okay, so some parts of the Bible come from God. I'll accept that. But then other parts are from men. So I'll just follow the bits of the Bible from God and just discard what I don't like. Cause that's clearly from men, right? Right. Here's what's interesting about that approach. Here's what's wrong about that approach. Who determines what is from like, oh, that's, that's from God. But then I say, this is, I'm going to discard it. But then this person could literally flip the two. Right. So that's why we start with this premise. The Bible is truth. It's normative. It's not negotiable. Um, so what this does for us is makes it easy yet tough at the same time, right? Sometimes uh, we feel it may be tough because it goes against kind of the norms in culture. But regardless, scriptures be heated whether or not it goes with culture or against culture, um, and so that's important to know. He talks a lot about He has a, a really good chapter on this. Um, and he talks about sometimes we're so ingrained within our own cultural norms that we lose sight a lot of this. But by operating from this on the front end helps solve a lot of problems. So one of the things that he says is important, though, is to distinguish between what is prescriptive and descriptive. So prescriptive is, hey, you are commanded to do this. This is what you should do, right? Descriptive is 
like it says, just describing a thing. So oftentimes um, we forget that the Bible deals with the world as it is, right? So a lot of people, I, I hear that a lot from, from folks that say, you know, the Bible elevates these heroes like David, but like look at the life of David. He did a lot of like, you know, bad stuff. Here's the thing. The Bible's not necessarily saying David is a hero. It's saying here's a broken vessel that God used. So it's describing the world as it is and people as they are. Um, and we see that in Old Testament and New Testament. So Amos 5.13 and Paul in Ephesians 5.16 says the days are dark, uh, the days are evil. Um, and so we must recognize that we see real, flawed, complex people not necessarily hero characters. Um, and I think that's, that's an, important, an important distinction. And then we must recognize the unique and final authority of Jesus. So there's a lot of things that when you read through the lens of Jesus and redemptive history, that you say, okay, that makes sense there, right? Like the law for existence. I mean, for uh, instance. So Jesus has come, and then you can then read backwards into that, where you're like, okay, so now I can read the law and what it was for the Old Testament for the Jewish people during that time. But now we have the redemptive power of Christ. So I read that a bit differently. Um, next, the Bible must be rooted in history. So the Bible is for us, but not about us. So what this means is sometimes it can create problems when we assume uh, that the Bible professes perspectives of our age and intends to speak directly and only to our context. Um, so the Bible is written for its own world and not directly to ours. One good example is I'm thinking the food laws in the Old Testament. So those are interesting because if read with no historical context, you're like, that's kind of weird. It says you can't eat shellfish, right? What's up with that? I love shellfish. But if you read it within the historical context, the purpose of the food laws, um, were operating within ancient standards of food hygiene. It was also a way for the people of God to separate themselves from the culture at large during that time. Um, so again, that's just some historical context that helps us view that in a proper way. So it's going to make you, you know, for them, the food laws make them stand out, so to speak. Um, Another example in the New Testament is conversations around circumcision. And I've had several people, you know, that are not believers and they're like, it's kind of weird, man. The New Testament's always talking about circumcision. There's always these debates. But when read in the historical context, um, there's a book that we're reading right now in the Colson uh, Fellows Program by a Christian historian, Glenn Sunshine. Super good, super rich. It's called Why Do You Think the Way You Do? And it talks about Christian worldview and just the history of Christianity. And he talks about how circumcision is a big deal and the conversation centered around it because there's things like historically that if you realize, which I didn't realize this, but the Romans, they worked out. They did a lot of stuff naked, right? <laughs> kind of weird, but they did. But in that context, I mean, you could tell right away who was a Jew and who wasn't. So that's why this was such a kind of heated topic. That's one of the reasons it was a heated topic, because you deal with a situation where it's like, okay, do you want to out yourself to this you know, normative culture that is against you and, and things of that nature? Again, rooted in context, there's a context there. Um, 
So next, he talks about interpretive uh, stances. And so he says literal interpretation is not always the best interpretation. Now, there's a lot of discernment involved there, and he talks about this. Um, and so he uses kind of the obvious silly example of when it says in the Gospels, like, you know, Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum. Like, that's obviously a literal statement. But when Jesus says, I am the door, or I am a door, right? We don't take that literally. So um, that makes sense. That's something that um, we know. And we're like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. But, for example, if you are reading, I'm thinking back to the Heaven series, because we had a question at uh, the Hernando campus that was about, like, hey, if you send your entire life, and then repented like at the very last hour, like, are you, are you going to heaven? And so one of the instances where Jesus speaks to this is in Matthew 20, laborers in the vineyard, and so it's a parable, um, and, it's, and it's a metaphor for this larger question, but you can see where people, you have, can see instances where people have read that literally, and they're like, oh, he's speaking about like fair like labor practices or whatever, and people can kind of twisted or whatever to pull out what they want to pull out. Um, whereas when Jesus is on the cross and he tells the thief, like, you will be with me in paradise, that is a, he means that literally. Um, so it's just important to remember that even in instances where the Bible isn't necessarily taking, it shouldn't be taken literally, it's all, we, we always take it seriously. Um, we just have to remember God communicates to us in ideas and concepts that we can understand and these will often transcend culture, thankfully. And so uh, one interesting example is recently I started rereading Revelation. And, I mean, that as far as literally, figuratively, as a metaphor. I mean, there are instances where uh, you, you even see where John says, like, do not read this literally. Um, so just a lot of <clears throat> discernment involved there, as always. Um, another point, the Bible gives us knowledge, faith, love, and hope, okay? The Bible is the most dynamic text in the history of the world. It gives us all of these things. Um, our God is a revealing God. He makes himself known through creation. And so we're taught, we started a series Sunday on knowing God. Um, so the purpose of Revelation and the Bible is that we might know God and know him as our Savior. So as we read through the Bible, we are, we are met with uh, being known and knowing him, hope, faith, all of these uh, things. And then... Our last point here, his last point rather, is that Jesus is the center of the Bible. So he cites John 5, 39, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you study the scriptures because you think that through, him, through them you have life, but you will not come to me. The one to whom the scriptures point, and that just lets us know and kind of points to the fact that the Bible finds its coherence through Christ. So he's the center of the Bible. You read it through that lens. Jesus is the foundation of our faith, as Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3.11. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Um, so because of that foundation that we have, we should build up from it by reading the Bible 
as a Christ-centered book that finds its highest testimony and interpretive center in him. And so this is precisely how the early church interpreted Israel's scriptures. So you can look at how they read and preached about Psalm 2, 16, as we're going through the Psalms during this series, 110, 118, even Isaiah 53. Um, these texts in their various ways are about Jesus. And this is Jesus, the, something that Jesus himself taught to the two strangers on the road to Emmaus. Now, what's interesting is he talks about how, so this Sunday we're talking about Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. We, we can see how that speaks to Jesus. But you could also envision Jesus reading this exact same psalm, right? As I walk through the valley of the shadow. And like he himself reading that. So Jesus is in, in every way centered within the Bible. Um, he, he exemplifies faith in God. He can look to Psalm 23 in the same way. Um, so in summary... Bible was put together as part of God's perfect plan. It's divinely given yet humanly composed. It's truth. It's normative. It's not negotiable. Um, the Bible must be rooted in its historical context. That's critical. It's the most dynamic text in existence. Um, everything in it shouldn't necessarily be interpreted literally. Because just as an aside, I mean, you're pigeonholing it in a, in a sense by saying like it has to be read in this way at all times. Uh, the Bible gives us everything we need, knowledge, faith, love, and hope. These are the ultimate expressions of humanity. And then if you want to understand the Bible, you need to understand Jesus. If you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand the Bible. Those work in tangent. So that's, that's my bit. I would encourage you, though, if, if, you, found, if you find this interesting and just even as, as a text, just to be able to look at certain chapters and to see some of the examples he gives. Very, very, very interesting. Very good stuff. All right. Hey, thank y'all for having me.